Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of today's podcast. And as a note to our listeners, uh, today's podcast is the first in a two-part series focusing on Latino, the Latino city and Latino urbanism. Uh, today, I am pleased to have Eduardo Gonzalez with me to discuss his recent book, Latino City, Urban Planning, Politics, and the Grassroots, published by Routledge in 2017. Eduardo is an associate professor in the Department of Chicano and Chicana Studies at California State University, Fullerton. His research and teaching interests are community development and participation, urban politics and governments, urban planning and health equity, and Latino urbanism. He examines the intersection of these topics with race, ethnicity, class, and immigration, with an emphasis on Mexican, Chicano and Chicana, and Latino and Latina communities. Hello, Eduardo, and uh, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. How are, you, how are you doing, David James? I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm doing great. And uh, as we spoke a little bit about offline, I was very fortunate to attend the book launch uh, for your work just this past weekend. So this thing is literally fresh off the press. So congratulations on its release, and I'm excited to talk to you about it today. I was wondering if you could uh, just begin our conversation by telling us a little bit more about uh, you know your personal background uh, as well as your your, your trajectory, your experience into, you know, the profession as a, as a, as a professor. Sure. Uh, I'm from Southern California, the city of Santana, and um, son of wonderful and supportive immigrant parents from Jalisco and Zacatecas, Mexico. Uh, small family, younger brother, grew up living here and spending a lot of time with uh, a lot of gra- maternal grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins. So spent a lot of times and in, in, um, a lot of years growing up in, in the city of Santana. Um, I spent a lot of my education in Catholic school from second grade all the way to uh, Loyola Marymount in Los, An- in Los Angeles, um, where I uh, obtained my BA in psychology and Chicano studies, came back to Santana, you know, living on campus for four years, but came back to Santana and uh, went to graduate school at UC Irvine, which is only about eight miles from, from my home where I grew up. Right. And and there's where um, I completed my PhD in urban and regional planning. And I fast forward. Now I, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Chicano Chicano Studies at Cal State Fullerton, and I'm completing my ninth year. Wow, that's great! Congratulations on that. Now you have a pretty, uh, you know, personal connection to uh, this work. Uh, can you go in a little bit into about how the project itself uh, developed and and how you got interested in in writing, particularly about uh, uh, your hometown and bringing in 
you know, these academic concepts and, and discussions to it. Good. Yes. Well, in 2007, it had been about a year since I had graduated from UC Irvine, and I just barely had started my position as assistant professor at Cal State Fullerton, which is roughly about 10 miles away from Santana, so very close. And during that time, I started volunteering at El Centro Cultural de México, a nonprofit in Santana. Mm-hmm. And El Centro has different circles or circulos where you could get involved. And everybody's a volunteer there. At the time, we didn't have any paid staff. And people, people who get involved are doing it to create programs, activities for the betterment of the broader good. And one aspect of El Centro was Frente. And Frente is the political arm of El Centro. And during that time, we were reached out to by Chicanos Unidos. They're a grassroots group in Orange County who does, does a lot of grassroots activism in Santana. Right. And they reached out to us, and I attended one of the first meetings that they, they wanted to talk to El Centro to see what was going on with this new Renaissance-specific plan that the city was uh, had just released uh uh, the draft of the plan and was going to be voting on it in a couple of months. Well, through that process, I got involved with them and other community groups in the area because the the Renaissance plan was covering 420 acres to redo the whole downtown core. And there was a lot of fear amongst grassroots activists, um, merchants on La Cuatro, which is the heart of the downtown area, the commercial heart of the downtown area. Right. That since the 70s has been marketing and catering to the immigrant, the working class Mexicano in the area. And, of course, you have the Lacey Barrio and, and, and the Logan Barrio connected to the downtown area. And so there was this fear that this plan was going to displace the poor, the working class, the Mexicano, the, the people of the downtown area. The housing was going to be redone, demolished for new upscale condominiums and work, li- work live lofts that already had been built prior to this plan. Uh, and so there was a lot of fear. And I got involved with, I got involved in, with a lot of different nonprofits, community groups who came together to form the Santa Ana Collaborative for Responsible Development, sacred for short, in, the sp- in, the, in, the, in about September 2007. And to fast forward over so many years of trying to understand this plan, we got into trying to fight back and stall voting on the plan by taking on the environmental impact report and trying to point out holes with that. Subsequently, the the Renaissance plan wasn't formally passed, but components of the plan survived. And the the station district is one of those. And that is related to transit-oriented development that we see going uh, around a lot of cities throughout the country where you mm-hmm. want to connect rail and transit to new housing developments and connect you to new amenities and so forth. And so a lot of the work-lift lofts that were, existed, we were thinking there was a lot more built. That's also something that's being um, carried out, to have the more new urbanist type of urban design elements to it. And we started to see, we started to see some changes also in the downtown area where the Cuatro's at. Right. catering to you know more the, the coffee shop mm-hmm. artist redevelopment that had proceeded this time in the 90s so you start to see all these type of redevelopment going on and we just thought that the renaissance plan and a lot of development that was happening was just going to allow the city to more easily speed through a lot of this type of redevelopment and through that involvement 
I also started publishing. I started to read a lot more uh, and to learn about planning in a lot of different cities throughout the country. And that's where I started to realize, like, wow, all this type of new urbanist redevelopment, mm-hmm. creative class redevelopment, and um, transit-oriented development that you start to see in different places. It happens to be these models were happening some 2007 and others the city wanted to happen, like transit-oriented redevelopment. Like they already had the train station there, but now they wanted to do a trolley. Right. So I started to see all this. And so obviously I started working with the group, um, doing community surveys, community forums, knocking on doors, bringing people, not, you know, organizing, bringing people to our meetings to, under, to understand what they understood about the plan, what was happening with their neighbors, if they understood why there was over 55 boarded homes in the communities, Chisel's properties. So we were doing a lot of different things, and it was a very complicated process over so many years for us as a collaborative to learn exactly what the city was doing. Um, we wanted to shoot, um, have the city plan according to what the community was aspiring towards what the community was reporting were problems. So we we uh, thought that creating a community benefits agreement, which is a legally mandated, mandated agreement between developers, community, and the city, would have been a tool for us to negotiate redevelopment uh, objectives and projects and sidestepping promises that the city might offer right. because we saw that this could be something that would be detrimental to the community. While that did not pass, we did get some achievements with that, and that was in 2010. So it took numerous years to get to that point, and in the book, I give all the details, but that's the gist of my involvement at that time. And during that time, I didn't really have the idea to start publishing. It's just you get into the community, the city that you grew up with, Mm -hmm. and that was my primary objective. But as I started my involvement, I, I realized, you know what, maybe there's an opportunity now to write a book. Because okay, yeah. through all my research, through all my research, I realized there's no book that examines redevelopment that's going on now that critically interrogates and analyzes new urbanism, creative class, and transit-oriented development in a large city, large central city like Santana and examines a downtown core like Santana and also blends in how the grassroots is responding to this type of redevelopment. So all all of these things combine to say, you know, there's no book that does that. Mm -hmm. We have the Latino urbanism literature that has been growing Mm -hmm. over the last 20 or so years, but a lot of it's conceptual. Mm -hmm. Case studies that do exist are sociological um, and relatively divorced from the topics that I wanted to examine. So I thought there was an opportunity to do that. Right. You know, and one of the great features that you brought up um, that, that I think your your book is just wonderful at doing is it, it shows the grassroots response, right? And, and that's really mm-hmm. it gets at this central tension um, that runs uh, throughout the book and that is at this issue, which is very commonly referred to in popular parlance, right, as, as gentrification and community responses to it. Um, but it is exactly that, you know, the the discourse, as you refer to it, right, the discourse of uh, redevelopment uh, as well as you know the how it affects you know people and, and the populations communities um, 
in particular, you know, we're referring to here as, you know, Latinos, uh, the working class and uh, immigrants. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a real great feature of the book. And uh, I'm excited to see as the Philip, uh, you know, as the field continues to develop. I think you're making a, a, a very um, you know, substantial contribution here. And uh, perhaps as we you know, segue now into the book, uh, it, it seems that through your activism and thinking about this as a book, you also started to see parallels, right, uh, between um, Santana and or is commonly referred to as you know, Santa Ana, uh, California, and, um, uh, you know, other cities that are emerging, uh, you know, Latino cities, right? So could you tell us a bit about how mm-hmm. uh, Santa Ana became the, you know, a Latino city that is, you know, predominantly Latino. Now I think it's somewhat the demographics are, but 80% of the city is Latino. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What's that? Correct. Gotcha. So tell us a bit about how, you know, this process of how Santana became a Latino city and uh, what has been the response, you know, by city officials, developers and planners to these changing sociocultural demographics. Good question. Good question. And so the the history of the city is a very fast the city today as it was in the late 1820s. So Santana, from when it became an official Santana as a city in 1889, up until the present time has been the county seat. And so what that has meant in terms of the downtown is what you see a lot of the civic buildings down there, right? The courthouses and also the downtown in the early 1900s to the to the 1950s was seen as this middle class bourgeois uh, shopping destination was, um, has been white. And from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, a lot of the migrants that came to Santana were from the Southern states and after the Second World War, and then you see another surge. Of, and so it's it's the city of Santana and Orange County as a whole also had a tremendous agricultural um, workforce. Uh, th- that that has been uh, very prominent in, in Orange County. But what we start to see, like we do see in a lot of uh, cities throughout the United States, right, in the 60s, where you have the disinvestment of the downtown where you have a lot of property owners uh, neglecting and not keeping up their buildings, where you also have a parallel businesses moving to the outside fringes of respective cities of the downtown or to other cities of that city. Mm-hmm. So that's where you, ha- you start to have the, sub- the suburbs. Okay? Right. And then you also have what we know now, you know, 98% of all FHA loans went to non-communities of color right. from roughly the, the, the 30s to the 60s or late 30s. So that means, what do we have now in the downtown area? Same, the same for Santana, where now, where we, once you have in 1960, where you have 82% of a white population and only 15% of a Latino and the majority Mexican population there, by 1980, you already have a 45% and a 45% uh, white and Latino population right. shift from the 60s to the 80s, at the same time in the city, in 1960, you have about 100,000 people in the city. By 1980, you have over 200,000. Mm-hmm. So the city grew by two by 100,000 people. And not only in 1960 do you have less than 7% of the city being immigrant, by 1980, you have over uh, just over 30%. Right. So you have So you're starting to see a shift also during this time period where the city now wants to redevelop the downtown, um, you're starting to have the emergence of, of, of a Latino city here, of a Latino city. And what's also happening while you're having these vacancies 
of a downtown and neglected buildings by property owners, etc. You're starting to have in the 70s now this organic development of what we call La Cuatro today, which is 4th Street. Historically, has been the busiest commercial area. Now it's La Cuatro, not just 4th Street, where it's marketing to the immigrant, the working class community that has been growing in the city. And the city happened to be happened to release their most ambitious and comprehensive redevelopment plan at that time. It was the most ambitious in 1974. Mm-hmm. And in that, pl- in that plan, it outlines this whole idea to reclaim the area, right? To, to bring back this regional community that's been developing in the suburbs in Orange County, right. which reflected that demographic that existed in the 50s and 40s and 30s in Santana. Mm-hmm. Um, and Being so not to, class, more, more middle class mid, white, right? Middle class white, right. And not to give too much of the details of the book, but that plan and subsequently, subsequently into the 80s, in the 90s, you still have those same ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't materialize. All those efforts and grand visions didn't materialize. In fact, even to the present time in the 2010, we still have Santana now is about, like you mentioned, you know, 78% Latino, the majority over slightly over 50% immigrant. La Cuatro still is there today, um, known as the the place to shop for Mexican products. You know, people will talk about the jewelry stores, the quinceanera slash bridal shops. Um, people will talk about the clothing stores. People will talk about the agencia de viajes, the travel agency, agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So the downtown area has maintained and the housing around has, has persisted with the working class population. But what has, has changed in 1994, the city was able to create what's called the Artist Village through heavy, mm-hmm. subsidy, heavy, uh, heavy subsidies, which is an artist colony. And while it wasn't successful for about 10 years, and we see a lot of newspaper, newspaper reports about that, that it wasn't successful, the city kept on investing, uh, allowing new liquor licenses to uh, for some establishments there, liquor licenses that were cut off in the mid-80s because the city thought there were too many cantinas in the area. Right. So... Be through the artist creating uh, work live lofts type of of, of 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 housing possibilities, investing in the arts and um, low, uh, forgivable forgivable loans to refurbish some of the 1920 buildings there for artists. That set off what I would say the this the first stages of gentrification in the area. Right. Yeah, I mean, in the book you mentioned it. It's really the um you know how you know the the redevelopment discourse and and uh, efforts uh, depend so much on things like eminent domain and and you know federal financing federal funds right that began right in the '60s and have you know evolved but but carried very similar themes in the ensuing decades. Is that correct? Correct, and that's what I like. Correct, and so to to put it in broader terms, and so when I I started seeing all this, and again I grew up in the city, and I grew up. On, spending a lot of my time on 4th Street. So a lot of this understanding of the area, you know, it dates back to my presence also in the 70s because my mother worked in the downtown area mm-hmm. on La Cuatro in the intersection of the busiest uh, section of, of that street even to this day. And so I've seen the Artist Village come up. I've seen all this development. and But 
once I started writing this book, I wanted to take a step back and really, as you mentioned, I look at the discourse and the practice of redevelopment, right? With the city states, as other cities would do, that whatever they're talking about and what they want to do, the idea is to improve areas, mm-hmm. right? And the, right. you want to improve them. But to do that, you first have to define them as blight. Right. And through that process, you're further marginalizing communities that are already marginalized. And in many respects, I wanted to see what that looks like. I wanted to see what that looks like. And in doing that, I wanted to see who is this demographic that the city is searching out for? Right. How does it talk about these demographics? Um, and so that's one of the things that I tease out throughout the book. right? And I look in that, I, I term under the concept of spatial alienation. Right. Um, so I get into the urban sociology there. And then, of course, and of course and I look at the way these things are done through redevelopment looking at different ways that the city can exercise its power through redevelopment plans. So that's another element to it. And then the other component is, again, how the community, going back to the 70s to the present time, looking at redevelopment, right? how the models have changed, how the mm-hmm. rhetoric has changed, um, but yet how some intentions are still the same. But then the other part to that, as you mentioned, is how the grassroots has responded to mm-hmm. these plans and practices from the 70s to the to roughly 2010. Yeah, and if you can talk about that a little bit, just you know, an example uh, or so, but particularly, um, you know, emphasize. I think a lot of time the, the community response, particularly if we look at uh, like East LA right now, what's going on in Boyle Heights, right there, the the community groups that are you know are depicted in the the, the news evening right, newscast as you know completely anti development almost, right? Um, mm-hmm. Using again, you know the the very contested term of, of gentrification, um, sometimes mm. community groups are very e- are painted with a broad brush as just being against development. But, you know, your work really shows mm. that, that that's not the case, right, that these grassroots groups do form that are not against, you know, development or redevelopment, but uh, there, there are other issues that are very central to them that they try to bring to light. So if you could, you know, just talk about that a bit, maybe with an example or so. Sure. And I think the, the best example here is with sacred, Right, the Santa Ana Collaborative for Responsible Development, mm-hmm. it was very important for the collaborative to respond to essentially what you just mentioned is communities are not against development or redevelopment. They are for responsible development. And what is responsible development? Responsible development is development that includes meaningfully those existing majority residents in the area who are going to be impacted by redevelopment. Right. Okay, And to have that space that decision-making space, that policy-making space to develop plans that are going to be meaningfully, meaningfully considered and adopted and not just created by elites, meaning city officials, elected officials, developers, even people with just capital who want to invest in the area, um, and sidestep community. Those are going to be most affected in who have been living in that area for a long time. The working class in Santana is the working class, the working poor, and the majority are immigrant. Right. Okay. And so these are the most vulnerable communities who often are not invited to the table. And if they aren't invited to the table, we've seen a lot of times it's smokescreen and you don't know where people's voices and aspirations are going to be, where are they going to lead to? And so that's the concern. That's, that's the main concern and the threat where there's this objective to hold the city accountable in terms of what they are intending to do. And exactly. if, it's the, if it's the city, then the city is the people. Right. The city is the people. And so they should have that meaningful role. And I think that's what Sacred was able to 
to bring to the forefront and um, community benefit agreement that that was negotiated, although it wasn't achieved. I mentioned earlier there was a lot of there were some wins there. One example is to redefine what affordable housing was and mm-hmm. not just accept the the rhetoric that there will be affordable housing here. Mm-hmm. Right. So we pushed the boundaries in terms of the, the the categories of affordable housing. Right. That was one thing that that was able to come out of that. Also, having some funds for social, cultural um, preservation and under those words and to be able to highlight some um, the city's care. I mean, the down the, the neighborhoods, um, the existing neighborhoods um, that that was another one. But that that's key, and I think, and I, when in doing my research, I also saw there's this one article from the early '80s where Sam Romero, a longtime activist who's been battling a lot of redevelopment that will gentrify and displace the majority of the area in the areas from this time, he was quoted in the in the paper saying that, you know, we're not against uh, development; we are for development that will benefit significantly the majority of the people here, the working class people. So. These arguments and the emphasis for the type of development that community members who live in the community, you know, that's 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 always been front and center for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that's very similar in other places. Yeah. And uh, th- I think since this this brings uh, the book brings us to the contemporary moment, I think one of the interesting um uh, you know, points about uh, Santana, particularly being, you know, a, a majority Latino city. It also now has, right, an, an all-Latino city council. Isn't that correct? Correct. And, and uh, so that's another... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, so that's another, and I won't give up too, give up too much uh, in, here, but and that's another point that we bring out in the book right. and something that I uh, have been writing also elsewhere where you know, historically, we we see in this country a lot of grassroots activism and fights to have you know, representation. And when we talk about representation, often that falls to racial or ethnic representation, because mm-hmm. we know historically the color do not representation and that they're fighting for. Right. And so you, we and we and I see a lot of that through reviewing a lot of archival in, uh, newspapers, namely Spanish language newspapers that I was able to access. Where you start to see activists making a call for better representation in city hall. Okay, well, in 2007, the city of Santana became the first all Latino city council of a major, of a large U.S. city, meaning more than 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. Well, the debates still go on whether it's 70s, 80s, 90s, 2010, or 2007. The same arguments and fights against the city calling for redevelopment that is responsive to the majority working-class Mexicano immigrant community to save, to invest in La Cuatro, to fight off what's going to be bulldozed by eminent domains, Mm -hmm. systematically erased through redevelopment that is through the the edges of it, which will encroach on it, or housing. I mean, we still have the same debates. Right. They're still going. And so it's really becomes this class interest where now you start to see people, activists saying, well, you're, you know, we probably we don't need more Latinos in, in, in city council. We just need to, the right ones. That's right. a quote from an activist. <laughs> and, it goes, and we go back to the question, what is the right one? Right. Right. In the area here, it, it goes back down 
to protecting and making sure that the working class and the most vulnerable do not get displaced and gentrified. Exactly. Yeah. yeah well, great. Uh, thanks for making those comments on that and for, you know, talking so much about the book. As, uh, as mentioned, we want to leave much to the uh, readers to pick up and, and uh, be able to grab a copy of the book themselves and read into it. But so much of this is just so prescient, you know, and salient to the current moment. I mean, like I said, these issues with, you know, gentrification, community response, and, you know, as we were just talking about here, you know, right, uh, local politics, electoral politics, right, and how often, um, right, uh, you know, view, you know, electing more people of color, right, has been viewed as, as a type of solution, how, you mm-hmm. know, that, that necessarily isn't the case. So, uh just a great work uh, on the book. And I want to leave some time before we wrap up here uh, for you to tell us a bit more about, um, you know, what is it that you're, you're doing on now? I know that you're, you're celebrating having finished this book mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure you're going to get, uh, you're getting a ton of speaking opportunities about this. Cause uh, you know, just, I think, I think we can both see and, and many of our listeners can, can even see in their own communities, the parallels of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this type of, uh, you know, development, both in, in, Population, you know, transition population demographics, uh, as well as you know these these big issues surrounding uh, urban redevelopment. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what you're you're doing now, um, either in your scholastic work or in the efforts to you know push the the book forward? Good, good. Well, some of the ideas that I've been thinking about, you know, are compiling a, an, a, an edited book, an edited volume where I want to look at these topics uh, with different cases throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there, there is not an edited volume that squarely takes a look at gentrification in 2010 or more recently, right, in, in Latino cities and in, 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 in throughout the United States. So that's, that's something that I'm very interested in pursuing and at the same time, in speaking with a lot of different people now that this book is out and and um, there's just there's just this need to communicate and to not just have academic um, information. But I keep on hearing from a lot of community members that I meet this need to create different um, resources or ways to show and what's going on in these communities. So another thing that I'm interested in doing is. A documentary of the city, nice. of the other town area. That's something that I want to do. I'm also thinking about creating some zines that are more uh, uh, friendly to the average person who doesn't want to read through a whole book, but could look, you know, review a zine and understand the history and the story of what's going on, and then also right. have that in and have that in Spanish too. Um, so those are some of the the projects that I'm looking into, and right now. There's still a lot of movement in the community. You got Sacred, who I mentioned earlier, and, but we also have a lot more groups that are collaborating with Sacred. Chicanos Unidos, I mentioned, um, was one of the groups that reached out to El Centro. I mentioned this in the beginning of the podcast. They are now also trying to begin new campaigns where they're seeing a lot of new redevelopment that the city is planning to do that is very similar to the downtown area. So. There, you know, I've been attending those meetings, and I'm we're plugging in to try to again make sense of what all this means, what the city's trying to do, where the funding's coming from. A lot of the same questions, a lot of the same type of uh, concerns that were there in 2007 are starting to surface now, and to again, but now the maps that we're looking at, there are different colors around the whole city, around the edges of the city that connect to the downtown. So we're starting to see a Renaissance plan. 
at a greater scale. And so I'm, I'm involved with, with that, and we're in the early stages to try to make sense of that. Um, so th- that's pretty much what I'm up to now. <laughs> and that all sounds like great work, and uh, I look forward to keeping track of it, and, and we'll keep in touch. So thanks again so much for your time and uh, just great work overall on this book, and I'm excited to hopefully see uh, you know how, how it goes with that edited volume that you just uh, were talking about, because I think that that is so necessary. Um, you know, there's there's stories like Santana that are all over this you know country, as, particularly as we we look in the post-war era. So it's going to be exciting to see how this field develops. So thanks again for your time, Eduardo. Thank you, David James. I appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. And thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez the host of today's podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Eduardo Gonzalez, author of Latino City, Urban Planning, Politics, and the Grassroots, published by Routledge in 2017. I remind our listeners that this is the first in a series of two podcasts that focus on the Latino city and Latino urbanism. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for the next episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to contact me, you may do so at New Books in Latino Studies at gmail.com or via Twitter, which my handle is at DJ Gonzo PhD, or you can also find us on Facebook at New Books and Latino Studies. Thank you. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.